Okay. I'm going to begin, uh, I'm going to read the psalm and now the title in my Bible, which is a good title and nothing wrong with it is, it's a psalm of thanksgiving for God's justice. It's for the choir director, a psalm of David. In the psalm beginning at verse one, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart and I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have maintained my cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. And every memory of them has perished. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He who does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. You who, who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they have hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known, he has executed judgment. In the work of his own hands the wicked, are, the wicked is ensnared. The wicked will return to Sheol even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not also be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, and do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. So far, it's the longest psalm that we have had the opportunity to look at. This psalm, is, I'm not in going to uh, break down every stanza, every portion of it, but I do want to highlight three main features of the psalm. And I think those three main features will go a long way in aiding us in our, number one, our service to the Lord, and number two, how to live before the Lord in this life in a way that's honoring and glorifying to the Lord. And the first one is praise. And now that is something we see in most of the Psalms. There's a lot of Psalms that are praising the Lord. But praise is not something to be overlooked. Praise is something that we ought to take very seriously. Praise is very indicative. It's becoming, it's fitting for the Christian, for the believer, even in David's time, for the believer to, who, who benefited from the Lord's providence, from his favor, to praise him and to praise him in every aspect, as we will notice in the psalm, personally, publicly, not only private, public, but not only personal, but corporate, and not just as a church, but even as a nation. Praise is becoming not only of a believer, well, we say not only of a Christian, but also for Christian people. That's why it is very favorable, it is very reasonable, it is something that ought to be done when we have holidays commemorating some act of God, some benevolent act of God. We could have a, a town maybe that had a tornado come through it that devastated the town as far as the property is concerned, but spared, no life was lost. That would be a wonderful way to remember that event that God protected them 
in it. That would be becoming, that would be fitting for them to have a festival, for them to remember that date and rejoice and praise God for his sovereign protection. That's just one aspect, that's one application. You may remember God in an event where you were protected. It might be a car wreck. It may be any event like that, some accident, but yet you were protected and spared in something that could have been very catastrophic and even deadly. It is becoming of you at that point to remember those things and to praise God for his protection. Well, that's very similar to what David is doing. So not only is it a psalm that teaches us the importance of praise, it's a psalm that teaches us the importance of trust. That not only must we praise God, but that we would trust God. Now, you can't trust God. You, you don't trust something you don't know, right? You, you, it, that, would, that doesn't even make sense. It's illogical, it's even irrational to say you trust someone you don't know. <laughs> That's why, you know, when ch- children trust their parents, why, well, there's intimacy there. There's, there's reasons for that child to trust their parent. Friends trust one another. Reasonably so. Why? Because they have experience, they have history, they know one another. But you don't trust someone you don't know. And so obviously it's important. And what David does show us in this psalm is that there is a a pretty extensive deep knowledge of who God is. Now in this psalm, even though we do not know the circumstances that caused David to write it, we don't know. We, in fact, no scholar is dead set in saying it's Absalom, it's fleeing Absalom, it's, it's Saul or some even commentators. And I think um, uh, even weighty ones would say, well, he's referring to Goliath. But we, we just really, it's all speculation and we don't know. But it really doesn't, take away from what the psalm teaches us. Because praise is, well, fitting for us, and so is trust. And then thirdly, another important grace is that of prayer. Prayer. Now, we may be weak in all three of these. (laughs) In some way or another, I think we are. We're probably not weak on all three at all points in time, but we may lack sometimes praise, and then we may be a little lax in our trust, and we doubt. I mean, what's the opposite of trusting? Doubting. And then prayer. We may find the thing that replaces prayer in our lives is worry. We agonize. We, we you know, in a negative way, we, we get ourselves worked up in a cause without going to the Lord in prayer. It was sort of like we don't know what to do with it. And we just keep rolling it around in our heads all the negative things that can happen or will happen and is going to happen for sure without first taking it to the Lord in prayer. And again, one of the, the one attribute we need to possess or something about us we have to possess in order to really prosper in our prayer life is knowledge. We must know God. We must have an understanding of who God is and that drives us to go to him in prayer more often than not. If I know that God cares for me and I really know that, I know that God is interested in this circumstance in my life. I'm going to have a tendency to what? Pray. Lay it before him. Tell him my own shortcomings and and express my own frustration with myself. Maybe even with others. But that I know that God has a hand in it, and because I know and understand God has a hand in it, that I can't expect that God would hear my prayer and act accordingly. 
Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that, uh, that this psalm, along with all the other psalms, that there is just this constant you know, taking away the hardship or the challenge or the frustration. Oftentimes, God leaves us in the midst of the circumstance and the challenge and he delivers us out of it stronger than we were. That is, he doesn't deliver us by taking it away from us. He delivers us by seeing us come through it. And I think that's very much behind Romans 8 when Paul begins to explain the depth of the love of God. Let's turn to us, Romans 8. Now, in verse 26 and following, or verse 28 for sure, Paul does address this, these providential circumstances and how they are used in our favor. But what is vital to this is in verse 33, he says, then who will bring a charge against God's elect? I mean, if God is doing all of this in us and through us and with us, well, who is going to bring the charge against us? And it says, God is the one who justifies. Who, who is the one who condemns? I mean, if God is for us, right? Christ Jesus is he who died, yea, yea, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril our sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced. Now, there's, this is where we should be. I am convinced by all of these things, by this doctrine, by my even past experiences in God's providence, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul is convinced of this, and we should be convinced of this. I mean... That list there is, I think, vital. I am convinced that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God, right? Nor angels, nor principalities. Nothing that's present or nothing to come, right? There's nothing that can go on in your life. There's nothing, there's no power there's no principality, whether it be angelic or demonic, can separate you from the love of Christ. And so I think this is, I think this is the vein that David is speaking from. And I think this is the glue that has always held God's people firmly planted in this earth. In, in persevering. And that's what we're talking about. David, in these Psalms, these are covenantal expressions of worship, of perseverance, of undergoing these tribulations, sometimes well-deserved. David was certainly punished for his sin. He was chastened for his sin. And, you know, that's to come for sure. So we talk about those three things. Now, there is always something important about the structure of a psalm, and sometimes I go there, sometimes I don't, but this one is important. There is a unique structure to this psalm. Let me give it to you. In those first two verses, we see praise. There is this praise given to God, okay? Now, the second part of the psalm, verses 3 through 6, is a testimony, if you will, by David about God's judgment on his enemies. It's a testimony. David is speaking of how God has delivered him, how God has protected him, as God has watched over him. Now, David was a warrior. He, he, he was a, 
general, if you will. He was a king warrior. He was not somebody who typically sat in the back. He was, a, as the Bible called him, as God referenced him, a man of bloodshed. And so he's very, he had been put in situations of, 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 of life and death. He had faced situations where at any second he could be put to death. And yet in these moments, God had delivered him. He had seen God's hand of protection on him. And he couldn't deny it. Probably, and I'm saying probably, this is sort of a, a spiritual hypothetical David knew he was in circumstances that he couldn't legitimately take credit for, that he, that he escaped from. You, do you understand? Do you follow that? That is, he realized he made it through the battle, the skirmish, or the fight, but really and truly, some of the other men that fell around him, he should have been one of them, and yet God spared him. And so what was his response to this when he calculated these things, when he thought about these things, what did it cause him to do? It caused him to praise God and it caused him to remember God's protection in his life. I can give you several in my own life where I was spared. I can give you two in particular. Maybe I should, I, I, I doubt it. I really don't like typically doing it just because I don't want it to be about me. But I know we all have these. When I was in airborne school, I had three parachute malfunctions out of five jumps, three, and was injured in one of them. But one of them, now when you're jumping a thousand people at a time, okay, in a small field, people run into each other. Now you're jumping a thousand people out of these airplanes, okay? Technically right at 1,200. I just rounded it down. And so when you're jumping 1,200 people by these planes making these circles over this, you know, 500-acre field, that sounds like a big field. I'll tell you not. It's not when you're 1,500 feet up. You're supposed to have situational awareness. You're supposed to watch out for others, and, of course, what happens when someone f falls up under you, which you're not supposed to do, it's a big no-no, but when their parachute falls up under your parachute, what does that parachute do to the wind in your parachute? It causes your chute to collapse, which is what happened to me. And I'm yelling and screaming at this guy that is oblivious to the surroundings. And I go falling and I land on top of his parachute now this sounds like a, this sounds like a make-believe but because this happens frequently they teach you a technique that if you fall into someone's parachute what you must do and what you don't do is kick and scream because that will tangle you up in the chute but all you're supposed to do is spread eagle and just stay like that and let the elements take care of themselves. And so you go into the chute like a big old fluffy pillow. And then you come out of the chute like a big mushroom. You know, marshmallow. And you just kind of just go your own way. Now, here's the problem. That sounds good. Nothing wrong with that. It's not painful. But the problem then is how far off the ground are you so that your chute can refill with air, activate itself. That's the problem. And of course, God protected me, a young pagan, heathen, because he had plans for me, that my chute opened about 75 feet off the ground. Now that was a very hard hit. Landing, but I was so thankful to have landed <laughs> that it's okay. And anyway, but that could have been, I, I mean, I got up and just dusted myself off. 
I do think that's one of these times. God, you look back in your life and you can find ways God protected you. It could be a car wreck. It could be, I mean, it could be a, a, a working with machinery. It could be a lawnmower. It could be any number of things. And this is David's, this is what David is doing. He's, a, he's recounting these things. Okay. So you see in verse 11, so we've got this, this testimony of God's justice and protection. But in verse 11 is the very, very middle of the psalm. And notice it is a verse of praise. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. That's the very middle of the psalm. And then we begin to go back out in verses 12 through 14. We see prayer uh, that God will save the righteous, that there's prayer for God to save the righteous and to remember that God is a God that saves the righteous. And then verse 15 through 18, God's judgment upon the wicked. And it's interesting because in this series of verses, David recounts to us how the wicked destroy themselves. They destroy themselves. Listen, beloved, and, and we'll get there, but I'll go ahead and mention it just for the sake of time, is that when we talk about the wicked and we talk about judgment, particularly providential judgments, Yes, there's a judgment to come, and there may be some wicked people, some, some unbelieving people. Now, let me say this. What David talks about these wicked people, typically he's referring to very enemies of the church, those who are attacking God's people, those who are attacking the church, those who attack the, the, the idea that God is God, that God is the only tr living and true God, and that they may seem to escape any turmoil in this life, but yet they will not escape the judgment to come. But in this life, ordinarily, ordinarily, the wicked suffer from their own plans, from their own wickedness, from their own traps they set for others. They fall into their own pits that they dig for others and they destroy themselves. Someone that is greedy destroys himself, may destroy his health by what? He works all the time with hardly any rest. He destroys all the relationships around him because he's so greedy for money, he destroys his own health because he just wants a dollar. That's another, that's a way that the wicked, the, the sinful may bring themselves. And we could see it with drugs or pleasure or alcohol or even laziness. Laziness is a sin that destroys many people because, well, they're dysfunctional and they won't function. And though, that, which means they may not even have the temporal luxuries of life, but they may not even have the beneficial necessities of life because they're just too lazy to do anything about it. So they destroy themselves. This is what David is talking about here. And they return to their original condition, which is the grave or the dirt, the dust. And then it's a psalm that ends with a prayer. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. I mean, this prayer is a really good prayer. It's like, Lord, remind them who's God. <laughs> remind them who's God. Remind the nations who God is. Remind them of yourself. Remember, Lord, remind them that they are but mere men made of dust. It's a great prayer. It's not long, but it's very biblical. It's very theological, and I think very powerful when you think about it. So let's begin to look at the psalm. I know we've touched on a couple of things already, but let's do so in the psalm itself. And now let's look at those first two verses and remember that this is the part that, well, that David begins to praise the Lord on. And here's what he, here's the, what he, these verses, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord 
with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name. What do we find in these two verses? Well, first of all, we find that what is acceptable praise? What is acceptable praise? Well, what does he say in verse one? He says, I will give thanks to the Lord. How or with what? With all my heart. Praise must be sincere. It must be sincere. When we praise God, it needs to be, well, real. It needs to be a real praise. We're not just repeating what we hear the pastor, a pastor's prayer or our elder's prayer or, or someone else's. We're praying and we're praising the Lord from our own hearts and from a full heart. Without reservation, there's, there's no dichotomy of heart. That is, when we're praising God, we don't think he's praiseworthy, and then on the other side, we don't know for sure. We're not divided. It's with all of our heart. Now, if you struggle with that, then if you're going to praise God, you need to repent. And you need to bring repentance in your prayer. You need to ask, Lord, Lord, I've been divided. I've not only praised you in one sense, but I've turned around and, and Lord, I've doubted you in another sense. And Lord, forgive me. That's the sins of weakness, my constitution. I don't want to do that. I'm not trying to do that. But Lord, I am asking you, give me a full heart of praise. That's a way to handle that. Not hard, it's not difficult. We are never to be ashamed for bringing before God who we are. God already knows. And if we're going to come to God reasonably, we need to come honestly to God, amen? We need to be honest, not just with God, but with ourselves. I promise you, I promise you, none of us are as strong as we think we are. And we're probably not quite as weak as we think we are, right? but we're not as strong as we think we are. And for this, we need to, to keep that in mind when we go to the Lord, particularly to praise his name. You need to remember that praise has to be done in a, in a proper way. That is, we don't just um, haphazardly throw something out there. No, it's to be done thoughtfully. That also encompasses the heart. It is, the heart is not just an emotion. The heart is the seat of the person. Our thoughts, our emotion, all that we are is encompassed through what? The, the, this metaphor of the heart. We're to have undivided hearts when it comes to praising God. We're to have undivided attention when we're, you know, have you ever prayed and you're distracted? Sometimes it's best to stop praying and say, Lord, I need to get back to you. <laughs> I, need to get, I need to wait a few minutes. I need to deal with this, and I need to pray because I need to pray with a full mind about me, okay? So we need to do that. I think the other thing we need to think about is when we think about God's works in verse 1, he says, I will tell of all of your wonders, right? All of your works that we are that David is thinking about the Lord's mercies in this. He's thinking about how the Lord has acted on his behalf. And that's something we ought to think about too. We're, we're remembering particular mercies and I hope that all of us can do that at some level. That you should be able to recount in your life God's acts in mercy toward you, whether it's your salvation, whether it's helping you in a relationship, helping you in a circumstance, how has God shown you the favor of mercy? Things that could have been really terrible for you, God worked it out and you benefited from it or you didn't suffer from it. How has God gifted you in these circumstances? How has God taken care of you in these things? And this is what he says. He says, I will be glad. That means I'll be joyful. 
I'm going to exalt. I'm, I'm going to talk about God. I am going to speak of these things. I'm going to particularly do this when I go to worship because that is sort of the corporate opportunity for me to be with my brothers and sisters to account for the mercies of God. All of us should have them. You think about the, I mean, we think, look, I wonder if you make a list for all the things you take for granted. I mean, we live in a very comfortable age. We live in a very, I mean, what is this? The age of, you know, knowledge and understanding, right? We, we just flip a switch and lights come on. We push a button, the heat comes on. Our air conditioning. I mean, we have the keys, conveniences. We have air fryers. We have microwaves. We have gas. We have electric. We have all different kinds of, of modalities to fix and prepare food to take care of ourselves. Shelter, roof, floors, clothes, travel, back and forth. I mean, I have thought going back and forth. I think now since this is my second year traveling, I think I've seen about four car fires, um, you know, a couple of tipped over tractor trailers. I don't know how many cars I've seen into, you know, that have hit the wall, the median wall. I, I mean, and yet I've, the Lord's taken care of me, right? But it's similar for you. You travel, the Lord's taking care of you. These things we take for granted, and so we have to be mindful of these things. We have to remember these things. There's never a point in time when we can go before the Lord and we should, we'd be like, well, I don't really know what, I don't, I don't have anything to pray for. That's not David's problem here. I'll be glad. I will rejoice. I'll exult in you. I will sing praises to your name. Now, I think David was a singer and more than likely he did sing in his private time. I, you know, probably not many of us do. Some of us may. I try to, I don't call it singing, so, but I do call it some form of praise. And it's enjoyable. But this is probably what David has in mind. We know David wrote music. David wrote songs. I mean, he wrote many psalms to be sung, even this one. Remember what it says, for the choir director. David was intending that this psalm be sang in worship with God's people. Now let's look at verse three and following. One thing we have to remember is when we're praising the Lord, and as David says in, in verse two, I'll be glad and exult in you, I will sing praises to your name. And as he leads into this aspect of God's judgment over his enemies, we have to remember that David is not just praising God for relief or he's not just praising God for um, um, uh, He's, he's not praising the gift, he's praising the giver. And that's important. He's not praising the gift, he's praising the giver. And that causes him to move into this aspect of judgment. Now listen, when we talk about God thanking God for his judgment upon the nations, we certainly have to assume some things. First of all, we have to have a tremendous great amount of trust in God because, you know, God doesn't act in a way that's contrary to his person. God is truth. God is good. God is faithful. God is merciful. God is kind. God, God is just. None of those things are in conflict, but that God is trustworthy and to bring judgments. And I know this makes some Christians very uncomfortable when they talk about judgment. But God is trustworthy. We can trust God that when God acts, it is good. It is a good action. And of course, let's go to one of the most, um, well, global events of judgment, the flood. And now there would be many to criticize that. I think it would be tempting for many uneducated, uninformed Christians to judge that. Why? What do you mean to flood the whole earth? 
and save only eight. That, that, does, that seems harsh. That seems unkind. That seems unreasonable. And yet we should not have any reservation about God's judgment. We don't challenge him on his acts of judgment. You see in verse 3 and following, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you. Probably idea here, and again, it's, it's some, some action or something that David experienced that the enemies were rerouted. And of course, in their rerouting or in their turning back from their pursuit of David, they stumbled and perished and they were overtaken. David remembers this, whatever this event is, he says, for you have maintained my cause. You have, uh, you have sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. Now, David is a type. Uh, David serves a unique position in the canon of scripture, and I think in the church of Christ, he, he serves as a type of Christ in the Old Testament, his reign and rule. Though David also is acting as a human king, and as a human king, he had to lead the nation and he had to deal with enemies, but he also acts as a type of Christ in one sense. And we can see that just as, as God is taking care of David's enemies in a particular, who else is God taking care of his enemies? The greater David the son of God. And we see the enemies that he had as we, if we read the gospels, we see that even Christ had many enemies that, well, God would deal with and handle and take care of. And so it is in David's life as well. Notice what he says, you've rebuked the nations. How does God rebuke the nations? Well, he rebukes the nations by causing their wars to cease or causing their plots to fail. They don't, they don't succeed in overtaking Israel. They are not successful in overthrowing David as king. That's a providential rebuke of the nations. He goes, you have destroyed the wicked. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. Now, I was trying to think in my head, what nation did David blot out? I couldn't remember one. You know, I couldn't remember one indistinctly, but I remember, you know, thinking about the Philistines. You know, the Philistines were very powerful people in Samson's day, but they sort of fade away. He says, the enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. You have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished. This may be some hyperbole, some poetry in one sense, but nevertheless, what is David teaching here? that God acts decisively and brings the strength of his enemies to nothing. That's really the point. And here's the other thing. You can write this one down. God's enemies are our enemies. Our enemies are God's enemies. Now we have to be careful. We don't just say, oh, I don't like that person. That's an, that person's an enemy of God. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about enemies. We're talking about those who hate us for the sake of Christ, those who hate us for the sake of the love of the word of God, those who hate us for the sake of righteousness and those sorts of things. That's an enemy of the cross. That's an enemy of Christ. That's an enemy of truth and righteousness and justice. And that is an enemy of God. And those who hate God must be our enemies, beloved. I don't know how we think we could be friends with someone who hates our God and Savior. I don't know how we could be friends with someone who loves, who, with someone who hates the one that we love so dearly and it loves us so dearly. How? That's an impossible. It's, it's an impossibility, really. Probably, I would say, a sign of unbelief if we're able to love and in, in, uh, tolerate that enemy and it not bother us that they hate God, that's probably not a good sign, uh, at least of the spiritual well-being of our own hearts and souls. Remember, we're to have undivided hearts. Undivided also means we don't, we don't, we're not seeking to be people pleasers. I can't be a people pleaser and a pleaser of God at the, at the same time. I have to die to being a people pleaser. I have to repent of being a people pleaser and be a God pleaser. But David is very clear. 
God's justice is manifested in that the enemies of the church, the enemies of God are put down. They're ruined. And in verse seven, he says, but God abides forever. God is eternal. This is an attribute of God that provokes us to confidence. (laughs) God is everlasting. The same God that protected David is the same God protecting you now. The same God that protects all of us and the same God that's going to protect tomorrow and a hundred years from now and a thousand years from now. God is eternal. God abides forever. Meaning that there's even meaning in this context that there's never ever going to be an opening for God's enemies to actually have their way with you because God abides forever. He's forever the protector. He's forever the watcher over his people. He's forever the throne of justice. That's what it says, doesn't it? In this latter half of the verse, he has established his throne for justice. That's a throne of eternality. It's forever. As long as God lives, there will be justice. (laughs) And that should cause us great joy. In verse 8 and following, he says, and he will judge the world in righteousness. We expect that and understand that. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. God is fair. That's what the word equity is implying. He's, He's just and fair. We don't often talk about fair when we may say, well, life's not fair. But God is in this sense, in his justice, he is fair in the distributing of justice. God doesn't punish someone for something that isn't right. And God doesn't reward someone outside of his grace and mercy that he is determined not to or shouldn't. God is consistent with his justice. And he will judge the people in equity. The Lord will also be a stronghold. Now notice, for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Now, this is important because in verse 9, there has been this liberation theology that has been made popular over the last 50 years. What is liberation theology? Liberation theology kind of is the, the theology and mindset of minorities and what you might call the welfare class because it's like, oh, we're the oppressed. We can't rise above this situation, so we're the oppressed. And so God is talking especially to us. That's not what this is. And that's why they would even, and they really call this, it's called liberation theology. We, that is, everything in that theological circle must be the breaking of the chains of the oppressor. And you might find that um, there's the oppressed and oppressor dichotomy that is often thrown around. There are the oppressors and then there are the oppressed. Well, David here clearly says that God favors the oppressed, those who are truly oppressed. And in this situation, those who are oppressed are the righteous. Those who love God, those who want to worship God, those who want uh, justice to prevail in the earth, those who want righteousness to prevail. He's a stronghold in times of trouble. Things do become difficult in, in seasons. We're certainly in one now in our nation. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. And you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Verse 10, those who know your name, those who know you, those who have a, I'm going to say it this way, those who have a saving knowledge of God, those who know God through his son, Jesus. And that's why Jesus taught us, if you know me, you know the Father. To know me is to know the Father. You can't know the Father apart from me. And those who know God know that David was saved. David had faith in Jesus. That's how David knew the Lord. That's how David knew God. David had saving faith in the coming Messiah. We confessed that this morning. That 
those saving graces were effectual to those by faith, through faith, by the work of the Spirit. David had this. And he knows God by faith. And he couples that faith with knowledge and understanding, theology. And this is what David is saying there. Those who know your name put their trust in you. What comes first, knowledge or faith? Faith. Faith comes first. If you go to the book of Proverbs, in fact, let's turn to that first chapter. I want to let you see it with your own eyes. In Proverbs 1.1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So what's the beginning of knowledge? The fear of the Lord. What's the fear of the Lord understood? Faith in Christ. Faith in God. That's the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of it. David is saying he has put his faith in God. Therefore, the knowledge that now he understands, he says, I know. He says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. This is not... Just in that saving sense, this is in that providential sense. I'm in these situations. I can trust God to bring me through these stages of life. And, and I've used this in counseling. I think it's profitable, and I'll, leave, I'll use it with you this afternoon. If you can trust God for your eternity, that is, you can trust God to deliver you out of the hands of Satan, out of the kingdom of darkness, out of your own deceit and blindness of your own mind and heart, out of that future judgment that is awaiting all of us in due time, if you can trust God to deliver you from those things, why can't you trust God for the daily things? Why can't you trust God for the much smaller things in life? Because if you can rest and trust in him in those things, you ought to easily default back to, I can tell you, I can, he's fully capable of these things. For you, will, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And that's even what our Lord says when he's teaching us to pray. All who seek me shall what? Find me. That's a promise. That, that's not a false advertisement. That's not false advertisement. All who seek me shall find me. Not only those who seek me from the perspective of salvation, but even those who seek me daily, they'll find me. They'll find me. Well, that's the first half of the psalm. I don't think we're going to have time to get into the second half of the psalm. Um. The second half of the psalm certainly is, um, I think, indicative of what we've talked about, but it does go into greater detail, and I think especially as it relates to the destruction of the wicked um, themselves. That is, they destroy themselves. And in verse 11, we'll, we'll, we'll move forward a little bit. It says, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion, declare among the people his deeds, for he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So we have the oppressor. Now we have the afflicted. Be gracious to me. And what does he say? God doesn't forget the afflicted. He doesn't forget their cry. This cry is probably their prayers for help. Their prayers for deliverance, for protection. Remember, they're afflicted. They're like the oppressed. He is calling upon God to come and act on their behalf. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me and those who lift me up 
from the gates of death. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I will tell of all your praises, that the gates of the daughters of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. In the net which they hid, their own foot has been caught. I mean, I'm sure, I'm not sure what verse 12 is actually referring to per se. There's certainly that he who requires blood remembers them, or that is maybe he who requires atonement. That there is certainly sacrifices to be made, and Christ is certainly that larger sacrifice, that important sacrifice, and he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. There's been no greater sacrifice than Christ in the deliverance of the afflicted spiritually but not just spiritually. I will say this, beloved, it's not just that we've been delivered from the realms of darkness spiritually, but we've also been delivered to the the good things in this life. There are benefits to being saved. It will make you a better person. Knowing Christ, walking with Christ, Trusting in Christ, being discipled by Christ, learning the the word of God in Christ will make you a better person, a better woman, a better man, a better everything. That there are not just spiritual blessings, but that they are very temporal and physical blessings in this life. And that we shouldn't just relegate our relationship with Jesus to just the spiritual realm. Look at all the testimonies, brothers and sisters. I don't know if you've heard them. I hope you have of drunkards, of drug addicts, of all different kinds of addicts coming to know Jesus Christ and, and, and being washed and becoming just different people. I've personally known some of these men. I I knew a gentleman that worked for my dad and I was just a young boy working around them. He hated God. He hated religion, made fun of Christians. I mean, he was just that guy. His testimony. That's right, he's got a testimony. He woke up one day, sat up straight out of bed, turned to his wife. He said, we have got to go to church. She was like, what? He said, I have got to go to church. She goes, are you okay? He goes, no, I'm not okay. We are going to church. Now, that, that, is, that is his exact testimony. They went to church. He ends up giving his life to Christ and spent the next 20-something years serving the Lord. And, he go, and he'll say, I asked him, point blank. I found out about it. I went to see him. I said, what happened? I mean, it's really one of the most spiritual-filled testimonies, Calvinistically, that I've ever heard. And this guy goes, I don't know what happened, but I woke up in a terror because I knew I needed to go and I needed Christ. He said, that's all I knew. Where did it come from? I don't even know if he had a Bible in the house. Somehow people had witnessed to him. I mean, Lord using means, but nevertheless, he wakes up from a night terror of conscience. And he says, I have to go to church. I have got to go do business with God. And he accepts and repents of his sin and puts his faith in Christ. This is what we're talking about here. This is what God is, what did we talk about this morning? The power of the cross. The, how do you explain that? You can't buy a manual that produces that. You can't do a workout routine and get that. It's something God does. God can save his people and protect his people and does it all the time. And God's people are being saved. And God's people are being protected. 
But it shouldn't stop us from praising him, from trusting him, and from calling upon him to do those things either, right? But the wicked destroy themselves, and they destroy themselves by their rank unbelief, by their hatred for God. It ends up destroying them. Now, in my friend's case, that didn't happen. God had mercy on him. But it could have happened, and God would have been just to leave him there, wouldn't he? But God didn't. God opened his eyes, and God saved him. And now you could say, well, now, you know, that's an experience. Yes, but you know, when you spend 20-something years in the service of the Lord consistently, and you die and go home to be with it, I think it's a pretty good testimony. I like Spurgeon. You know, Spurgeon was all about, don't, don't tell me you just put your faith in Jesus. Come talk to me in a few years. Right? Because we all understand flashing the pans. We understand it's important to, it's how you end life, not how you begin faith. Right? So, in verse 17 and following, we are reminded in this psalm that we ought to be humble. The wicked will return to Sheol, the grave. The grave for the wicked is what we call, what the Puritans call, what Scripture calls a jail cell. It is a grave. For the righteous, it's a bed. The righteous go to rest in the Lord in the grave. Their bodies rest while their spirit goes to be with the Lord. But the wicked are, the, the picture here, the metaphor used of Sheol is this is a prison house for the wicked. Even all the nations who forget God. Notice the key, the forgetting of God. The unbelief. For the needy will not Always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord. This is the prayer, verse 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, and do not let man prevail. Don't give man a foothold that he believes he's greater than he is. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but mere men. When I, when I read that the, one that, the biblical character that comes to my mind is Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar thought he was God. He was so smart. He was brilliant. He was an engineer. He was a master general. He was a master of battle. I mean, a very gifted man. And he loved himself inordinate love for self. And he believed that he was untouchable. The elites haven't changed, have they? And yet God humbled him. And th so this picture here is, Lord, keep man humble. And we look at the elites today, they think they're so smart. Uh, the World Health Organization, whether it's NATO, whatever the case may be, look, they think they're so smart. They think they're so powerful. They think they're so brilliant. Their plans will come to nothing, and God will see to it. And God will bring their plans to nothing. And when God does it, he will do it in such a way. Nobody saw it coming. No one saw it coming because God will use the things of this world to confound the wise. And that's how he works. Even in David's day, our prayer ought to be, don't let man prevail. Lord, you see these institutions, don't let them prevail. Remind them, O oh Lord, but they are but dust of the ground. I really think our prayers, these are legitimate prayers. These are good prayers. Remember, Remind the nations that you are their judge and that we'll be judged. Let the nations know they are but mere people. They're not divine. They are, they're not eternal. Life is but a breath. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And yet the audacity and the arrogance and the pride that we can create in a short period of time.
Lord, bring yourself to their remembrance and remind them you are God, they are men. Now, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm, this psalm of justice, this psalm of praise, this psalm that exalts you. And Lord, it fosters trust. It, Lord, moves us to put our trust in you. For, to remind us of your power, your equity, your fairness. Lord, your desire to protect the oppressed and the afflicted. Lord, they still are still among us today. Lord, we think about the times and we think about people who take advantage of others. It's wicked. And come, Lord, to their rescue. Come to their aid. Come to their protection. Lord, you are the eternal, all-knowing, all-seeing, ever-present God. And we trust you, O Lord, to carry out justice in the earth and to protect, Lord, those whom you love. But Lord, move upon our hearts to be a praise, a praising people, a trusting people, and a praying people. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.